1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In today's episode, I speak with Lasser Brun, the global director of 50 by 40, a collective impact organization aiming to cut the global production and consumption of industrialized animal agriculture by 50% by the year 2040. Lhasa has been an advocacy specialist and leader in climate and energy, sustainable agriculture, and animal rights for 20 years, with deep experience in mobilization, communication, campaigning, and movement building. Working across sectors and continents, Lasa's past roles have included being a global project leader at Greenpeace, an advisor in the Danish parliament, the head of energy transition at Climate Action Network, and an independent advocacy specialist. Within these roles, he has led high-level international dialogues, campaigns, and projects around the world. In this conversation, we talk about Lasse's background and how it led him to 50 by 40 as well as what the organization's mission is and how they plan to go about achieving it. We then dive into the range of solutions that could help us get to the goal of reducing global animal protein production and consumption in the next few decades. We discuss everything from plant-based meat and cell-based meat to regenerative agriculture. We also get into a fairly in-depth conversation about what the just transition of our food system will look like and what the impact will be on jobs, human health, animals, and of course, the environment. If you have ever heard this podcast, it should probably come as no surprise that this is a topic I was very excited to have a conversation around. Lhasa is a big picture thinker, and I found talking to him to be enjoyable, enlightening, and very inspiring. I hope you walk away feeling energized and excited about the work 50 by 40 is undertaking to build a better future. Vlasa Bruun, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Vlasa, we've talked and met a few times. uh, Unfortunately, didn't record a podcast during any of those uh, amazing encounters and conversations we've had. But um, Mm -hmm. I think it's long overdue. So let's fix that now by letting people hear more about the work that you've been doing um, even before you started 50 by 40 but more specifically, what your plans are going forward. But before we, we jump into the details of this new organization and your bold mission, uh, I'd love for the listener to to get a better sense of um, your background and how the work that you've done in the past has influenced your decision to lead an organization like 50 by 40.
2: Well, happy to, to give you the 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 longer explanation of that one. it you know, has really been a journey, to be honest. Um it's it's not something that's coming the last couple of years or even the last couple of decades. Um I have since I was a kid I always have a, a natural um empathy, I would say, for living beings and not just animals, but everybody who was um a living being, including human beings. And I would say I have always had a strong inclination to, to kind of look out for for those who were in a less fortunate position than myself. So I was always the kid who would stand up for the the kid who got bullied in school. I was the one who would be uh, stopping others and doing bad stuff, uh, <laughs> um, depending on that one, of course. So um, when time came that I wanted to get more engaged, uh, I'd say like when I was about 15, already started getting uh, into issues around uh, vivisection. So I was working in an organ- anti-vivisection organization in in Copenhagen at the time, uh, doing voluntary work for them, doing street events, uh, handing out leaflets and, and getting engaged and so forth. And within a few years, I actually ended up leading that organization um, and, and organizing its, its advocacy, its uh, outreach and so forth. And that was kind of the first uh, step I took in terms of um, organizing, uh, doing something for the better, and the time of, of my main focus was on uh, anti vivisection uh, work. Um, I had, of course, been uh, inclined to to avoid eating animal products. Um, it wasn't until I was in my late teens I, I actually became vegetarian, and it would take another 10 years before I actually... Went vegan, so and, and that's something I always keep in mind in terms of uh, everybody's on a journey. But maybe we can come back to that. Um, then I spent some years working on that, and I realized that I needed to to uh, professionalize myself to be better at doing what I'm doing. And uh, at the time, my analysis was that uh, doing political advocacy was the most efficient way yeah. of creating change. So uh, when time came to go to university, I. I chose to study uh, linguistics and, and rhetoric and focusing on uh, political communication, to use that specifically for, for what I wanted to do. And then I would say, to make, cut the story relatively short, over the next uh, couple of decades, I I went and, and worked for different organizations, some of which are international quite well-known, such as HSI, uh, Human Disease International at the time, World Society for the Protection of Animals, now World Animal Protection. I worked for Compassion in World Farming for a number of years. Mm. And then then I had uh, quite a few years where I was working for Greenpeace, uh, running the European work on sustainable agriculture focused on on, uh, very much on uh, agroecology and uh, anti-GMOs and uh, the the larger advocacy, inclusive uh, uh, international trade issues. Um, And then uh, after that, I ended up working uh, for a number of uh, years on for Climate Action Network. Um, Given the gravitas and the importance of addressing climate change, I I was quite keen to venture into that and take what I have learned so far in my other uh, places of work. Um, But overall, I would say, and before I started 50 by 40, I've had for the last at least 20 years, had a dream. And that dream was really to break down the barriers uh, between the different players in the third sector. I always found it so infuriating uh, at best and and angry, angering at, at worst that there were so many organizations who were doing work for the better, whether it was on human rights, development, uh, women's rights, animal rights, um, climate change, but there was very little communication between them. You would see now and then there was like a little... Um, kind of a, a, an effort to co- coordinate around a specific piece of work like a temporary coalition set up or an alliance built, but there was always like for a short-term goal. And and several things always came to mind. Why can these people not be in the same room and actually work it out? Why is it that a lot of people at the time at least had very strong uh, anger towards animal rights uh, organizations? You always got the classic, like, there are people dying. Why do you want to focus on the animals? <laughs> And I always found that strange because it was not because I loved animals then I don't love human beings. I always felt, and I used the, the, the kind of the cheesy expression, my heart is big enough for all living creatures. Just because um, some people only focus on, animal, on human beings doesn't mean that everybody has to. I think I can do the whole thing. And so forth. And I was always very um, you know, confused and annoyed by that part. And I was trying to bring people together. It was really, really, really difficult. And then... Of course, the, the funding aspect was always an issue because there was so much funding that went into very separate tanks and was channeled very separately. And I always looked at all this and thought, everything is about compassion. Mm-hmm. It is about compassion for other living creatures. Why do we not become better at working together? So over all these years, I always tried to find opportunities to, to engage in that kind of work. And I have been leading cross. Uh, organizational and cross-sector initiatives, for instance, the Climate Action Network. I was leading a um, 100% renewable energy task force that included city networks, NGOs, uh, business affiliates like the Climate Group, for instance, that were uh, trying to address the issue of energy transition together. But again, that was more like smaller, like small short-term initiatives. And I was like, let's get together in the long run. And lo and behold, um, then at some point in uh, 2018 uh, i started some initial conversations with some people and and they talked about this new initiative they wanted to put together called 50 by 40 which had exactly the um, the mission and vision of addressing uh, the biggest problems we're facing today like climate change injustice I- I- inequitable food distribution animal animal cruelty um water um uh, Wrong water use and what have you um, under this common banner 50 by 40, saying that one of the biggest and best things we can do for the world right now across all fields is to cut down the production consumption of animal protein. And I was like, I want to do that. This is exactly what I've been waiting for.
1: Yeah, I, there's so much you you said there in terms of these challenges and frustrations that you face that I uh i can relate to i i won't go on too long about this but i i do want to mention a few years ago um i think it was 2013 yeah it was 2013 when i was um starting to launch my my first media platform in this in the world of food and sustainability and my 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 goal my vision was that i was going to create this this platform that would bring together all the biggest voices from the animal rights uh, and welfare movement, the animal conservation movement, the environmental movement, getting them under Mm -hmm. one platform where they could share their ideas and their voices. uh, It seemed pretty simple, in my opinion, because uh, I I kind of came in naively from the world of, of technology and media thinking that, Everyone who worked for a cause um, probably shared this understanding that everything is interconnected and that the only ways we can maximize our impact if we can all work together. Uh, I say it was naive because what ended up actually happening when I reached out to people, especially when I got a lot of yeses from the folks in the animal conservation and rights movement, I started to get a lot Mm -hmm. of no's from the environmentalists. Um, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they made it, and they were not even hiding the fact that they firstly made it pretty clear they wanted nothing to do with the other camp uh, and they didn't see the connection between their causes. Secondly, they didn't want to touch anything that uh, actually involved the food system or animal agriculture because it wasn't a campaign focus or what I later understood better was it wasn't the focus of their donors. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what what started off as this um, idea that, you know, maybe everyone who is driven by passion in the nonprofit world, even though their causes may not seem the same on the surface, probably has an understanding that everything... Uh, does tie into each other, and especially how, at, and I said this in the book I wrote, Eat for the Planet, is that at the heart of all this problem, you find one gigantic destructive system, which is industrial animal agriculture. So even though mm-hmm. you know you may be working on conservation issues or clean water or clean air, um, or perhaps you are working on ocean conservation, you will understand that if you tackle this one problem, you are inadvertently helping in the biggest possible way to solve some of the challenges being faced by all these apparently disparate issues. So um, you know of course cut a long story short now I jumped to many years later uh, I I would say I kind of gave up that mission. We continued to write about all those issues but realized that we were just not going to get the support of the environmental groups. Um, Here we are now 2019 and I think what, what has happened, and I think this is a good thing, is that I, I do think that, that things have changed in the last few years. Uh, five years ago, mm-hmm. it was tough for me to even find um, five environmentalists who would want to talk about animal agriculture. Uh, or even, forget environmentalists, people who knew anything about climate change and the environment, to even recognize this as an issue. Um, I remember putting, trying to put mm-hmm. together a mm-hmm. panel at a big, at a, at a big conference and not being struggling to find names that I could add to my panel uh, back in 2013, and this is 2013 2014. Um, but insane, yeah, yeah, it's just insane. And this wasn't even that long ago. Are we way ahead now? No, not really. But I do think that people can no longer ignore the issue, and so the timing of you focusing on on this effort, I wish it had happened five years ago. To be honest, I wish. Uh, we had started early because the facts that we are now that you're relying on, the facts that that I keep spewing, um, aren't new necessarily. Yes, yeah, some of it has been updated and new reports keep coming out, but we've known for about ten plus years now that uh, if you don't look at our food system and if you don't look at the global demand for meat and try to start tackling that problem we almost have no hope of slowing down the pace of climate change. We can focus on renewable energy. We can we can try to convince governments around the world to do that. But if we don't we don't address the food problem, uh you know, forget forget greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to end up destroying our oceans, we're going to end up destroying our rainforests. And finally, I think now in 2019 to see you know, mainstream media covering these issues with what's been happening Mm -hmm. in the Amazon rainforest, Uh, it's about time. Um, And I think we, I kind of, I think I just want to mention one last thing. It underscores the importance of why we need a project like the one you're embarking on. So while the majority of my podcasts focus on food entrepreneurs and solutions and how we are building a better food system, we cannot ignore the fact that there are layers of solutions that are needed. And one key one, one amongst many key ones is this cross, um, you know, cross activist collaboration and and campaigns that need to start happening. So anyway, I just wanted to say that up front is that uh, I've been waiting for this for long. I, um, in my own way, try to do something like this, but did not succeed in the way that I hope you're going to be successful. Um, So I know when the moment I heard about this initiative, um, I I was all on board in terms of trying to figure out how we could help and support and, and get the word out there so that we can start, accelerating the pace at which this collaboration happens. Yeah. Um, so anyway, for people who, who are listening and don't know what 50 by 40 is and, and what the mission is, maybe you can start there and and also, of course, react to anything I just said.
2: Sure. So, I mean, 50 by 40, first of all, it's called 50 by 40 because um, the name kind of encapsulates the vision of the initiative, which is to have a 50% reduction of animal protein consumption and production, it's important to have both, uh, by 2040. And that goal or that vision is is kind of set as uh, something that's seen as being very ambitious and also very uh, attainable, is actually realistic to, to get it done. I mean, we could become much more ambitious, but this has taken into consideration all the, the uh, Issues you addressed before, like uh, the market power, the political issues, the behavioural change issues, the social issues, the global food distribution issues, that all plays into to creating like uh, tectonic shifts, if you will. So we think 50% reduction by 2040 is uh, is ambitious but also realistic. So that that is what we want to achieve, and we decided to make this the name simply by making it so blatantly obvious what we are about. Um, and what are we? We are um, called ourselves a uh, collective, uh, global collective impact initiative. So uh, that means that we are we are an organisation, but we are more more than that. We are kind of a, we call ourselves sometimes a network of networks, because we try to bring together um, the best players within this field and open it up to new players that haven't been working in this before. So, as I mentioned before, cross-collaboration between NGOs is crucial, and that's the backbone of this whole initiative. So, we have right now a, a wealth of different organizations um, in terms of um, different sectors and and, and and different foci. So, we have traditional environmental organizations, such as the NRDC, Greenpeace, for instance, Friends of the Earth, We have uh, more modern initiatives, such as the Good Food Institute, focusing a lot on the corporate aspects, and that change there. The biodiversity organizations, like Rainforest Alliance or WildAid. Uh, Of course, the animal rights organization and wealth organizations, such as Humane Society, uh, International Humane Society of the United States. And also a strong focus on uh, health uh, and nutrition. So we're working very closely as well. Part of this is the Fishings Committee for Responsible Medicine, medicine uh, Physicians Association for, um, for Nutrition, and also, very importantly, uh, Health Care Without Harm. And for the latter, just a quick note on them. They, a lot of people don't know them because they work mainly behind the scenes, but it's a massive initiative that works with several thousand hospitals around the world and, and like actually works to change their procurement for food, hospital food, into something that is much more uh sustainable in terms for the patients in terms of health and also for the environment and again the win-win more plant based food um and so forth and what we do is to bring all these different uh strategic partners together around different uh ways of collaboration uh, one thing is that we do collaborative projects so that means we are uh finding ways of of um, coming out as as Speaking to one issue with many different voices. Uh, a concrete example is: is um, some months ago, we were part of ECLE, uh, uh, which is a, a global cities network with uh, more than 2,000 cities across the world. Have an annual summit where they discuss uh, better ways of governance at a self-national level, and they normally have a food track. And now there was this year we were uh, organizing an event that food track, speaking about the advantages from a health finance and environmental perspective of municipalities investing in changing uh, public procurement for their schools, retirement homes, and so forth, into much more plant-based food. So we had, in this case, we had Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and 50 by 40 working with Eclay to set up this event and uh, cover all those different aspects and the complexity of the issue. Um, Very soon, we will be launching a new project uh, it's uh, likely going to be around top 25 in, in Chile in December, in Santiago, um, in, in which we're going to see, again, a, a, a vast diversity of the different uh, organizations we have speaking to the importance of decreasing animal protein consumption and production, uh, speaking to biodiversity, to health, social justice, and so forth. So that's some of the common projects. In addition to that, we um, we actually do grant making as well. So we offer our strategic partners to to submit proposals for initiatives or projects they want to run um, mm-hmm. that feed into or support the fifty by forty uh, vision and mission. So that can be uh, for instance, furthering the the discourse around hospital foods. It can be about establishing ourselves, establishing the animal protein discourse. More strongly in disenfranchised communities, or it can be uh, high-level advocacy or even litigation projects. The common denominator is that uh, two things: one is that it has to, to of course, further or accelerate what we're trying to do with 50 by 40, and it has to to ideally create better collaboration between the different groups. So, if one group, for instance, suggests a project, uh, we might say, well. It looks good, but why don't you try to bring this group into it and add, add their perspective to it? And you get a much greater, greater uh, platform for amplification and reach and and eventually impact. And uh, then you start working together and we build those bridges. Because what we really want to see is that we can sometimes take a step back. And once one fifth, when 50 by 40 is not there, kind of guiding the processes, the different partners are continuing to collaborate. And that's you know in itself a win for us. So that's kind of like the. Some of the uh, the main things, we'll also be doing events and activities. And, of course, we are um, working very much in, um, in lack of a better word, in service provision. Uh, we're not trying to duplicate efforts of existing organizations. We're trying to add value to them. While some of our partners are very engaged in this field, um, some are just starting to get in there. They might not have the the resources. I mean, maybe the, their budget hasn't included this kind of work. But then we can come in and say, well, if you need some information, if you need to, to engage in some foray, if you need to do something, we can help you do it. And again, a concrete example is that two weeks from now, uh, I and, and, and part of my team are going to be in, in New York City for the climate week. And one of the things we will be doing is that attending meetings, attending uh, my multilateral and bilateral discussions on the issues of nature-based solutions for climate change, and reporting that back to the partners so those who are present can get that information, but also those who are not don't have the time or resources, or or the current um, planning to go to New York. They can get that intel, and very importantly, is that they can ask or say, "Well, we would love to find out uh, what is the current corporate." Uh, outlook on on, uh, on nature-based solutions from X, Y, and Z perspective. And then we will see if we can find out by attending a forum where they're meeting the right people and attaining that information and bringing that back to the partner. So it's very much also about becoming an information platform and a service provider uh, and essentially just making it much easier for all these different strategic partners to, to do their work uh, that we all think is important.
1: Yeah. And so how is... Uh... How has the reaction been so far? Uh, it seems like, you know, if I could sort of uh, simplify that, and I think a 50 by 40 is almost this this coalition of sorts that will run its own campaigns, that will help um, fund mm-hmm. campaigns for other organizations um, and will kind of play the role of being... A platform that takes these ideas forward in a way that helps everyone, because it is aligned with the one single vision and cause that you have. So I also want to say that the the name and the fact that you have such a clear vision, uh, I I, th- I think definitely helps. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of simple clear vision because uh, when you know that's what your your target is, uh, your methods can can keep can be adjusted. Uh, along the way to achieve the target versus, um, you know, if you keep having a fuzzy moving target, you're never quite sure if you're heading in the right direction. Um, so that's firstly, it just makes it very easy for people to get on board. But I'd love to understand how the reaction has been so far from organizations that have decided or agreed to work with you or partner. Um, and what are they seeing as the as a reason why they need to do this?
2: Um, well, it, it has been, like most new projects, uh, are always met with some good old-fashioned, healthy skepticism, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually think is a good thing. That's where you learn to 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 make sure you're doing the right thing by getting questions like, why are you doing this and what are you hoping to achieve? So um, it hasn't been like just a walk in the park, waving the big 50 by 40 flag, and then people come running and say, yeah, why do we sign? Uh, it is really hard work because... Um, As it should be, and I really support this, uh, organizations have to show due diligence and say, if we get engaged in this, it means there's something else we cannot do unless we get extra resources. But realistically, we need to give up something else. So what is the gain for us as an organization uh, to to be part of this? And how can I justify this to my board, to my my members, to to my funders and so forth? So there has been uh, some healthy, healthy skepticism in the beginning where organizations are finding, hmm, I don't know, is this, how long is this alliance going to go on? It's just like a temporary solution. What is the focus? I, I'm not sure my organization really fits in and, and so forth. So um, it has been um, our a big piece of work and, and like a strong commitment to actually demonstrate the added value of, of, uh, of 50 by 40 and why we think uh, this is needed. Um, and we've done that in many different ways. And then I'll get back to your question. We've done it by by um, demonstrating that this is a global initiative. right? We're really, really trying to make this a global platform. As you will have heard from when I mentioned the organizations, a lot of those are based in the global north and even more so based in the U.S. And that just happens to be how we got started. Um, most people who work for 50 by 40, by the way, are spread across the world. We have some who work in India and South Africa, uh, in Berlin and so forth but overall um, we want to try to make this a global project and if this was a project that that um, helps to increase veganism in uh, in northern Europe and in the US and Australia um, I wouldn't have touched it at all mm. this the special thing about this project is that it really addresses the the root causes and the bigger pictures we need to to uh, to deal with and it does so in two ways is that we the the diversity and the width of 50 by 40 is true. There's really such a big diversity in groups, which also lead, leads to many internal discussions and quite hefty ones, which is healthy. And also, in, in terms of uh, geography, we are working really hard to in, uh, integrate uh, the so-called Global South perspective. Um, and maybe on that I'll just make a brief note that 50 by 40, the the cut of 50% by 2040 is actually a global average, and that's really important to keep in mind. It is not a, an average that is 50% across the board. It means de facto so that in, in particularly countries like the US, Germany, Denmark, UK, and so forth, it will mean a 70 to 90% decrease in animal protein consumption by 2040. Whereas in other countries, particularly in the global south and particularly in uh, sub Saharan Africa, countries like Eritrea or Ethiopia, it will mean actually a net increase in animal protein consumption. The ambition is a a global uh, average. Then coming back to your question, so we need to explain all these things and explain that actually not only are we reaching far and across geography and uh, sectors, we're in it for the long haul. I mean, this is not a three-year campaign. This is not a five-year, even a ten-year. We intend to keep this going until 2040. I intend to run this project if hopefully if I do well, uh, and then I retire, essentially, So, and hopefully have achieved what I want to achieve. Otherwise, I might have to stick on a few extra years. But um, the, this is essentially how we explain it to them. And then in the beginning, it is met with skepticism, and they and they want to see how that added value come about. And I think one of the first things is to, to demonstrate the value of just having those safe spaces where people can have those very deep conversations and it is difficult and it takes time. And a lot of people who really like the hard targets, the hard objectives and the KPIs find it difficult to see the added value initially because it takes a long time to bring people together and make them feel comfortable about having real deep discussions about the issue at hand. Um, And that is why we're trying to kind of promote what I call radical transparency, which is, Uh, enabling a space where different organizations feel um, safe enough to be vulnerable enough to open up and talk about the shortcomings within their respective organizations. Um, And only in doing so, they can actually be honest about where they are and ask for the real help they need. Uh, If you create a space where you have different organizations that sit and talk, and particularly if you have funders on the call or the meeting, they, people always want to look good. They want to say, yeah, things are going great. We might have a little thing here, but oh, well, and it might be that something's going really, really badly. And instead of being honest about it and learning, uh, learning from other people, getting advice in a, like in a hive mind perspective, they end up sitting back holding back with this and never get it solved. So I think one of the things we're trying to do is exactly create that safe space for people to have those conversations. And I feel we have slowly started to succeed with this. I mean, we haven't even been around for a year, but I think we're having some really good and deep discussions and honest discussions between the different organizations. And I do feel that, that they come and they, and they talk about the added value of uh, the collaboration. And as I mentioned before, we are really seeing different organizations uh, liaising and collaborating around issues outside the 50 by 40 collective, if you will, and that by itself is a victory. So that was a very long reply to your to your question, but but it is it is very complex. Movement building is incredibly complex, mm-hmm. and it takes a long time.
1: No, no, I totally understand that, and it's it's not a simple task that can be undertaken like a like a campaign because you're you, you know you're trying to stay true to your vision, but at the same time relying on the ability to build consensus. Between pretty disparate groups that have their own agendas and their own strategic plans for the years ahead, um, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like I'm I'm saying this again and again, but I do think that the the simplicity of fifty by forty, as much as the clarity of the vision, the simplicity of the vision is is also important because uh, one of the things I've uh, encountered uh, over the years uh, writing about the issue of um, of food in the environment, um, speaking about it, um, having conversations with people about it on this podcast, um, generally thinking about the future of our food system is that uh, usually people seem to have differences of opinion on what is the right solution. Um, so, of mm-hmm. course, you have uh, folks like the Good Food Institute that that believe in market solutions like cell-based meat and plant-based meat as uh, one of the big ideas that is going to disrupt, sort of transform our food system in the years ahead. You have others who, you know, probably environmental organizations, health organizations, that believe that that isn't the answer or that cannot be the only answer, that the answer needs to be to go back to farming the way we used to farm. While they all recognize the problem, which is, I've I've yet to encounter someone who doesn't think that uh, industrial scale animal agriculture is not bad for the planet. Even if they um, are believers in regenerative agriculture, or if they are you know anti GMO activists, everyone agrees on that one thing. So they so which mm-hmm. I think is great. Mm-hmm. So we can start with the with what we all agree on, which is we all agree industrial animal agriculture. Is terrible for the planet. The scale at which we do it to feed 7.6 billion people today is not sustainable, and it will continue to be unsustainable as the population reaches 10 billion by the year 2050. So that's great. We can start with the problem. Now the question is, what is the solution, right? And I think here's where people get a little get a little lost and confused. Uh, you you know, most recently, I've actually been seeing some some you know press about. The plant-based meat camp or the pro-GMO camp having um, debates or arguments against the regenerative agriculture camp, and again, I think mm-hmm. while it's I'm a fan of of discussion and debate, I do think that uh, what gets lost in the process is that I don't think either camp is entirely right or entirely wrong. (laughs) And this may be a controversial thing for me to say as uh, someone who is undoubtedly Mm. a proponent of uh, market-based solutions like plant-based meat and cell-based meat, but... Hear mm-hmm. me out for a second. I do think, and I don't think you disagree on this, but maybe for the listener, this is more for them, is that I do think mm-hmm. that when 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 folks in the regenerative agriculture community and 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 I won't go into details of what regenerative agriculture is because again, there are some there are differences even there. But essentially, people who feel like the answer to factory farming isn't plant-based meat or cell-based meat. It is the ability to farm animals in a way, that sequesters carbon in the soil, that cares for the environment, that um, takes care of the land, that promotes um, more holistic and sustainable agricultural practices. And we need to go back to a way of farming animals that supports all of that. Now, mm-hmm. is that wrong? I don't think so. I actually think they're right about that. I also think that there are some environmental benefits of regenerative agriculture, um, does it solve all the problems? Probably not, because it still uses land. It still uses water. Uh, it may help with the greenhouse gas emission issue, but it does not uh, help with other as- other downstream impacts of animal farming. But it could be a solution only if we all recognize this one additional fact. And this is where I think 50 by 40 comes in. The one additional fact mm-hmm. is regenerative agriculture could be part of the solution provided we cut down our meat consumption. Only if we cut down our meat consumption. Because if one looks at uh, meat or animal protein consumption in general, because if one looks at that as the new solution to feed the world and the rising demand for meat in the developing world as well as the developed world, you're going to end up with the same or a new problem that we cannot scale up regenerative or... Uh, smaller farms to that level to feed the world. So the only way that even is a solution is if we also recognize, just like we're recognizing that a- industrial animal agriculture is bad, that whatever solution we offer needs to include a caveat that we need to consume less animal protein. I th- and I think if people across the board, in you know whichever side of, or whichever camp they fall into in this debate, can uh, can recognize those two truths we can then start moving towards solving some of these problems in a unified way rather than uh trying to find one silver bullet solution that's going to fix this climate crisis that we're going to that we're facing and that it's inevitably going to worsen if you don't do anything
2: no i i totally agree no i i think that's 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 it, it's a very interest, uh, sorry, very important in, uh, observation, and it, it is uh, how it really is, because we we cannot just change overnight, and we cannot have like only the pure path forward. And and whether we like it or not, we're not going to have a vegan world in the mm-hmm. next thirty years, and maybe not in a hundred years. But so there's a, there's a need to look at these very complex and multifaceted, multi-pronged solutions going forward, and and um I'm glad you touched upon the issue of like like again not getting into due regen regenerative agriculture, culture, but um that whole discussion is a, is a little bit like it uh, reminds a little bit of the, the traditional animal rights discussion between Frenchioni and Peter singer, right where these mm-hmm. um uh, Peter singer is more like uh, nihilistic and like pragmatic saying, well, we need to save as many animals as we can right now and move forward in that perspective and and then the Frangioni camp will say, well, any attempt to improve the lives of animals in the uh, animal welfare system is actually delaying this revolution. We want to see whether there's this method change. And I tend to lean more towards the single solution, which which then says, well, uh, until we have the revolution, which we'll hopefully we'll have in time where there's going to be less suffering across the board, we need to alleviate as much suffering as, as possible. And that also plays into this issue about 50 by 40. And what we're doing, um, and actually plays into like how we define ourselves. Because if, if um, specifically, like if you said if we were to replace, let's say we're successful, and then when we uh, reach the 2040, it's 50% de- decrease. And if then the the solution has been that uh, the McDonalds, the Tyson, the uh, JBSs, the um, all the big producers and and the commodity traders. Have just exchanged fifty percent of their production across the globe from uh, from uh, animal meat to plant based meat or cell meat uh, and we're good now it wouldn't be a solution at all because then we still see all the different the different problems we're seeing today, which has to do with with uh, how food is produced how pr- food is distributed, the equitable or inequitable food distribution, and so forth so In 50 by 40, we say we want to see the transition and the reduction by 50%, but we very much want to see the remaining percentage and uh, being sustainable agriculture that abides by the principle of agroecology and even food sovereignty in terms of access to and the right to produce food yourself and taking much more away from a centralized, uh, a big corporate production. So, of course, having said that, then people say, well, don't you work with, uh, like, organizations that work with the big producers like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat and, and fries and what have you. And of course we do because that's part of the solution. And we have to have all those different aspects along the way. But if you'll allow me, I wanted to just mention one thing that I'm really excited about and I think could be uh, a game changer going forward, um, and, and that is in terms of um, uh, the societal aspects of uh, changing the whole food model. What does that mean for the workforce and um, for those, for the listeners who are f- familiar with that will know that a just transition is a very um, a strong term within climate change and within uh, energy transition, uh, and has been so for a long time, ever since, or even before, but particularly since Sean Burrows from the International Trade Union Confederation some years ago said, was asked why she's uh, dealing with climate change, and she said, well, there are no jobs on a dead planet. And since then, there's been a very strong focus on the just transition, which is that when we close down the oil factories, the, uh, the, so the oil plants, the, the coal, coal plants, and we transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to renewable uh, energy base, what does it mean in terms of job creation? What about all those jobs? And lo and behold, over time, we've learned and research has shown that actually it's a net job creator. An example, just to give you a number, if you invest 1 million U.S. dollars in the fossil fuel industry, you typically create seven jobs. If you do the same in renewable energy, you create 14 jobs. They double the amount of jobs. And you create better jobs, more gender-equitable jobs, and better paid jobs. And generally, you lift people out of um, uh, out of whatever social uh, problems they might be in. It's better jobs and there are more of them. Now, we can expect that potentially we can see the same. And the initial research has begun... Uh, of, of what, uh, how that transition is going to look when we shift from an animal protein-based system towards a more plant-based system. And there are two ways of looking at that. One is to learn a lot from the clean energy revolution, as we've seen now, and presumably a lot of that can be applied to like specifically uh, people working on, on farms that produce plants versus uh, meat. But we can also just go a little bit back in time because we haven't touched base on that, but I know you probably spoke about it in previous, uh, in previous episodes, which is that it's not like we've had industrialized agriculture systems for the last 500 years. Mm-hmm. It is a relatively new thing, right? It's like predominantly a post-World War II phenomena that people eat so much meat across the world, particularly in Northern Europe and in North America. And so it's also learning from what is what it used to be back in the day. And if you take the amount of jobs you had back in the day and then create them in a way that is sustainable to the workforce, and you take take into consideration all the technology you have, uh, I think we can be looking at something really, really interesting. And the reason why I'm excited about this is for several ways. First of all, I really truly believe, from an ethical and social and and, uh, political perspective, that. Um, the people who are producing our food should be treated much better. Uh, often farmers end up taking hostage between uh, organizations like, like in, in the third sector, like 50 by 40, saying we need to produce better food. And then the, the, the big corporations are squeezing the farmers to produce more and more and more for lower prices. Mm-hmm. And the farmers are just the victims in this as much as anything else. And I really believe that they should have much better connections, much better, better pay, and be much more respected in society. But also, strategically, when we get the trade unions, the workers' unions, working with our side and actually promoting this issue, I think that can be a, a truly game-changer politically because the constituencies we're looking at that in terms of trade unions and workers' unions are humongous. That's one thing, so the numbers are big. But it's also very much when you speak about workers' rights, you have a much stronger access to the revolving doors and speaking to the decision-makers. So. As you can probably hear, I'm quite excited about that because I think the pers- the pr- perspective of what can be done with a just transition within the food system change is just humongous, and I just can't wait to get started with it.
1: So glad you brought that up because one of the things I if that frustrates me with um, most solutions to uh, the problem of inequality and uh, of course climate change and the problem with uh, unnecessary suffering. Is that they are they tend to be too too targeted and too sort of um, myopic in their views and and sometimes you need that I mean you, you you can only sometimes it looks it feels like the only way you can make progress is to tackle one problem at a time and that mm-hmm. um, trying to have too broad a view can sometimes be counterproductive because you then end up lacking focus so I understand why organizations tend to do that with campaigns and tend to do that with their mission and their strategies for the next five, 10 years. But what ends up happening is then we, we, we'll we see everyone then jumping onto the same solution because they see one organization or campaign making progress and they kind of start to piggyback on that. And what's what ends up happening is you miss the bigger picture then. And so just even mm-hmm. forget organizations, even let's just take the example of What I mentioned earlier about, you know, plant-based meat or cell-based meat uh, and the fact that, you know, as you said, JBS, Tyson, Cargill, everyone seems to now be diversifying their protein portfolios uh, by, Mm -hmm. you know, adding in some plant-based options or blended options or investing in companies that are working on those technologies. Um, Is that a good thing? Of course it is. Is that alone the entire solution? As you said, not really, because uh, what, you know, while we are saying it's good that Tyson is doing what they're doing, if we're also not holding them accountable for the continued uh, bad that they're, con- they're doing and not working to transform their current agricultural practices, which as you've said are pretty recent, only in the last 60, 70, 80 years probably, uh, we are not going to end up building a truly sustainable food system. What you're again doing is band-aid solutions to a much larger interconnected problem. But the challenge has been is that, firstly, even those who did see this bigger picture, it seems like too much of a, uh, it seems like too complicated a problem for one group, one organization, and undoubtedly for one person to tackle, uh, which is why I think we've ended up with these different sub-activism groups, or, you know, sorry, these different movements almost, that are all focused on specific issues. But I think in our trajectory as, as, as humanity on this planet, um, we've reached a point where maybe now is the time to see that bigger picture, to realize that when you're talking about climate change, you are talking about workers' rights, that when you're talking mm-hmm. about animal suffering, you are talking about environmentalism. When when you're talking about saving the oceans, you are talking about how the ocean is both a food source, also a dumping ground. And we can have mm-hmm. these, you know, maybe it's 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 the... Um, it's the information revolution in the last 15, 20 years that have allowed us to reach this point. But I think we're finally at a point where it's it's acceptable to talk about these interconnected problems without seeming like a complete idiot or someone who doesn't see reality mm-hmm. in the right way because you are living on some, uh, on some imaginary planet where everything is one and interconnected. No, the reality is we are the cause for majority of the pl- problems on our planet. And we can also be the solution to majority of these problems only if we figure out how these problems all intersect, interconnect, and how the solutions can also possibly be that way. So you can't just say, you know, saving animals or saving trees is about saving animals and saving trees. It is about much, much more than that. Um, and And again, I find... The food system is such a easiest such an easier easy way to, to articulate that because mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. just examine it, you examine how food is produced, the number of people it impacts, the number of animals it impacts, from from the from farm to table, uh, you can almost develop a map of how the entire planet works. Um, so, I, you know, I do think that that conversation is not had enough. If we end up having that conversation, it ends up sounding too intellectual versus practical. So the fact that you are now, you know, leading an organization that is tasked with arriving at practical solutions to what may otherwise seem like pretty esoteric problems or esoteric mm-hmm. sort of uh, ideas about how, clean energy or sustainable agriculture can also lead to more jobs. How tackling climate change is also about tackling uh, food security and then national security. I I know you're excited, but I think I'm getting even more excited now to think about (laughs) what can actually happen if you get everyone to just sit down and recognize this and have 50 by 40 take the lead on it. So no one organization has to bear that burden. You exist to, to almost create this clearinghouse, whether it is for funds, whether it is for ideas, whether it's for campaigns, that allows this truly sustainable food system to unfold in the years ahead.
2: Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm very thrilled about this. And, and you know, with just in what you said now and, and how people are starting to, to, to really accept the complexity and the interconnectivity of things. It's always important to to meet people where they are and not, uh, and not where you want them to be, because there is a tendency well when one has been working on these issues for a very long time, and then people say, oh maybe we should try this, and some people say, well we suggested that 10 years ago, but that's not really helpful. It's like saying, well that's great, we are then on the same place, the same page, uh, page sorry, and let's try to see uh, how we can work on this together. And it is true, you know, the, the cliche uh, to change everything, we need everyone. It, it is very worn out, particularly in the climate change scene, but it is really true. You know, it, it doesn't, we don't solve the big issues by addressing multilateral uh, funding streams or corporate only or NGOs or national. We need everything. We do need the international flows to change. We need the multilateral discussions at the CBD, UNFCCC, FAO, and so forth, to, to bring about the solutions between countries. We need the national uh, decision makers of government to take charge and really be ambitious and, and proactive about creating this change. We need subnational entities like uh, municipalities, big cities to really take the, char- take the charge, the corporations, the investors, the NGOs, and of course, the consumers. Everybody has to work together on this, but I truly believe we're heading towards a space where this is doable and um, uh, with a little luck and lots of elbow grease, we will get around to creating that change we need.
1: So, I mean, I I don't want to put a damper on all the enthusiasm and the excitement around fifty by forty, but you have to be realistic that this is going to be supremely challenging to achieve, which is why no one's done it in the past and no one has embarked on <laughs> such an endeavor. How do you view those challenges? Like, what do you anticipate as being the biggest hurdles? To, to bringing about
2: this sort of a sort of a global shift the I think there are many many things I can I can I can give you many examples but I think I mentioned like three key things we need extreme ambition we need extreme patience and we need extreme humbleness mm-hmm. ambition because unless we keep banging on how urgent and important this is um we, we are not going to make it. And, and that, that, that is that every time we're having those difficult conversations, whether it's within 50 by 40, whether it's with uh, people we're targeting from an advocacy perspective, or whether it's third parties we're trying to bring into the conversation, we need to be flexible in the conversations, but we cannot bounce a bunch on the, the aspects of what we're trying to achieve and, uh, achieve and the importance and the urgency of it. We cannot go back... Go back. It used to be that you say, "Well, yeah, let's see what we can do, and yeah, we'll work it around it. We cannot do that anymore. we We are obliged to really push for the urgency and importance of this. So always keep your eyes strong in the ball and make everybody else see that ball. Secondly, in terms of patience, um, I've worked in different organizations before, and I have to say working in a, one organization with one mission vision, one strategy of strategies, and a way forward. Uh, is much, much easier than building a network. It takes extreme patience to work with very diverse ideas and very diverse organizational structures and, to be quite frank, often egos Mm -hmm. of different organizations or individuals, and trying to get all these people to work together. And, my God, you have to be very patient. You have to listen to a lot of stuff and and, uh, sometimes uh, swallow your pride (laughs) or swallow what you feel like saying because... And need to think of the bigger picture. So the patience in driving, trying to build a movement, and I and I don't want to sound pretentious, that we're building a movement. We're trying to help an existing movement, movement uh, accelerate and and and, uh, and grow. So the patience is important. Then humbleness, and I mentioned that before. It is meeting people where they are. And now there's nothing wrong with somebody who has never had a thought about you know, uh trying to decrease the animal protein consumption, whether it's an individual or corporation or a government or a municipality, uh, the second they actually realize that they they wanna they want to do that, they should be applauded, shouldn't say, Well, wow, we did it for thirty years ago, you know, why are you coming into the game now? Why well, you're a laggard, not a leader. They should they should be applauded for taking that step. Um, and that leads me to a very strong tactic I wanna really highlight here and And for those who know me, something I'm always banking on about. is kind of a hobby horse of mine, which is when you want to change things, whether it's individuals or decision makers or strategies, um, if you change to something new, radically new, it is the same as admitting you were wrong before. Now, that's completely self-evident in everything in life, but we should not underestimate how big a factor that is when you're trying to create change. And that is particularly pertinent when it comes to politicians If a politician has been saying, well, there's nothing wrong with animal protein uh, uh, and uh, there's nothing wrong with indulging in that, and all of a sudden they realize actually it is a huge problem, Mm -hmm. for them it might be easy to change the personal perspective and and change the way they think about it. But actually, if they want to go to their constituents and say they they made this change, um, they could end up looking like idiots because people are going to say, but for 20 years you said there was not a problem. Why, Why have you changed now? Um, and they're going to, well, uh, I just, I saw the light. I had an epiphany, whatever. Mm-hmm. And to that end, it is very important. And it's our obligation to try to, f- to f- help, to find way way out for people like that, because yeah. there are a lot of decision makers, a lot of people who wants to make the changes, also corporations, but they are afraid of how the change is going to make them look. Mm-hmm. And, if we in any way or shape or form can help them make that change and actually make them look good instead of looking what they perceive to be stupid, it is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Which is also why you often see when new publications come out, like you had the Lead Lancet report mm-hmm. uh, coming out lately. And I'm sure if you did an analysis of like how many decision makers came out and said, actually, now I think we should change the policy for eating less animal protein. After that report, relative to before, you'll see many more after. That is because... They can they can use that as an argument saying, well, I wasn't sure before, but in light of this new evidence, there's no doubt about it, and therefore I'm changing. I'm growing. I'm evolving. I'm becoming a better politician. I'm becoming more responsible and so forth. So that is a very strong tactic, and we need across the movement to continue delivering that ammunition and that help to ensure that there is uh, the argumentation, the basis, and the leverage for decision-makers and normal people not normal people, uh, people, consumers, for instance, who want to change. So that's a very concrete thing. So those are like some of the things I wanted to highlight to, to your question there. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's about acknowledging that we're in it for the long haul. And again, that's coming back to what I think 50 by makes 50 by 40 strong is that, you know, we might lose some strategic partners over time. They're going to say, well, this, maybe this wasn't for us. And that's absolutely fine. It might be unfortunate, but it's fine. We might gain some more others and so forth. But it, it's, it's an evolving process. And uh, it's not like we're going to reach an equilibrium and then we have a certain size and we're just going to march forward. Things are going to change over time. And we just need to be really, really good at moving ahead with the changes. Yeah. And uh, on that note, one thing that makes me really, really uh, positive and really, really hopeful about the future is seeing the change in young people today. Um, I'm not that old myself, but I, I mean, p- people in there like late teens and early twenties, and even early thirties, seem quite young. And um, they, the the amount of awareness and the, the appetite for change and the engagement is just uh, tremendous. And when 20 years ago, when I was talking about roughly some of the same things, but didn't have the the vehicles to drive things forward, I was met with that. Completely different wall of uh, fear, prejudice, mm-hmm. skepticism, anger, or whatever you like—all the different things. Um, whereas today, it is—it's a very different thing. It is actually cool to talk about these things, which is something I still need to get used to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of young people are really on to this, and they're thinking about their future. And of course, Greta Thunberg is Thunberg is is a mm-hmm. is a, a, a great example. Um, but it's across the board when I speak to young people. I really feel this change, and that makes me really hopeful about the future. And uh, as generations start getting more engaged, you know, the young people who are engaged now get the buying power as consumers, they get the voting power, they get in places and power positions of power. I'm, I'm hoping and and uh, really believing that things are going to change for the better. But it's not going to happen by itself, so we need to keep providing the momentum.
1: I agree with everything you said. I love how you articulated the. Um the the three prong kind of tactical approach with uh um with how you're gonna go about achieving this what seems like a a pretty big task. Um and I agree that that the younger generation really is is reason for us to be hopeful because they've they've inherited some of these mistakes that we've made over the last seventy to eighty years. Um enough in, in in many aspects of our in global industrial economy but especially with food um they understand it they recognize the the challenges being faced by us as uh, as humanity as a planet and they want to work on solutions and they are, and they and they feel empowered to do so it's 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 their planet and and they feel like it's their obligation to do so which definitely gives me hope the other thing i wanted to say though is that the point you mentioned Uh, I don't want it to go unnoticed because I think it's a profound one about, um, and and I know earlier you said we have to meet people where they are, but I think you just expanded on that with the point you made about um, accepting when you're wrong and and then being Mm -hmm. able to transition into acknowledging what is right. That was such a brilliant point that you made that it's very important for all of us, no matter where we stand on, what is the right or wrong solution to acknowledge that there's always room for improvement. There's room to listen to other points of view so that we can not only expand on our own Mm -hmm. ideas, but also acknowledge that no one solution is going to get us to the end point that we want. So while I personally would love if just plant-based meat and cell-based meat was the only solution to our food crisis and the problems with our food system, I must acknowledge that there's much more that can play a role in getting us to that end point. And maybe the end point you and I want is that we have a sustainable food system that does not involve animals, but we have to acknowledge that it's a journey that's going to get us to that place. And the only way we're going to do that is by finding ways where we can find common ground to work together and collectively uh, sort of raise our uh, consciousness and our a point of view on these issues to bring about the change that we hope to see. Um but anyway, I do want to close out with one last question, Lassa. I think that um this is a very relevant question obviously because um I it is a forward looking one. I end up I close out all my podcasts with this question, which is um If we are successful, and then I guess Mm -hmm. in your case, it's pretty simple. You have a clear goal. You want to reduce meat consumption by 50% globally by the year 2040. Um, But my question is really, what will the world look like in 2050? If you succeed in that goal, and if we are able to build this this, this new food system that is now uh, able to tackle these diverse problems and not just myopically focus on one issue, but but systemically change the way we produce, distribute, and consume food. In your view, if we are successful, if you're successful, what kind of food system do you envision by the year 2050?
2: Wow, that's uh, how many hours do you have? <laughs> that's a big, it's a big question. But I mean, I would say obviously being true to the mission and vision of what we're trying to achieve here, it will be a food system with significantly less animal protein consumption. And that's not just something we hope to, it it has to be like that. Otherwise, we'll be exceeding the planetary boundaries by so many times that we simply cannot live here in terms of temperatures and water use and and land use and so forth. So it will have to be significantly uh, reduced. And if we're talking 50% by 2040, we should probably be talking about 80 to maybe 90% by 2050. So it's not proportionate proportional to the increase, but it actually increases like the you know hockey stick going even uh, faster. So that's one thing. The other thing is that uh, I want to see a world that is much better at producing food locally for the people who live there. And um, since we're moving towards a much more urbanized world, like by 2050, 80% of the global population is expected to live in cities. We need to have much better food production in or around the city. So, peri urban food production and urban production. And the beauty is that growing plants and, uh, and produce like food and veg in cities is actually not that difficult. And I'm not talking about having tomatoes and, and maybe some thyme or um, whatever on your window I'm talking about proper production that actually feeds the people of of uh, of wolf um, uh, top productions and so forth. and for another podcast, we can talk much more about that because I think that's another huge issue that's coming uh, massive urban food production. but having that local production or which is urban or periurban, takes away a lot of the the, the problems we're seeing with food production today, which is one is the input needed to produce it in certain areas. Uh, so that's lots of import and export that is detrimental in itself from climate perspective, um, and it's also the transportation of particularly perishable fresh produce like food and veg to the big cities. We can cut a lot of down in terms of transportation, in terms of of, um, of production, and also those plants that we're going to be growing in cities are by themselves carbon sinks that will suck out a lot of the carbon out of the air and actually. Purify the air, uh, make it better for the people living in the cities. So we don't need this dystopian future, like like looking like Blade Runner, but actually much more a future where uh, it's it's cleaner, it's nicer, it's more uh, based on renew- oh, entirely based on renewable energy and local food production. Um, I don't think that is going to be a problem at all. It's just a matter of willfulness and governance. So the, the animal protein issue, the local production, and then it also again in terms of ownership, I think is really important um i really want to see a move away from having some of the a few handful of the biggest uh corporations controlling the food you know all the big six in terms of the the uh, fertilizer and the uh, pesticide producers and and the big trading companies um which is often leads to quite a problematic uh, food production systems, where the consumers and the farmers are taken hostage in a bigger uh, geopolitical, politi- uh, sorry, geopolitical financial game. So let's try to move much more towards people producing their own food uh, when it is possible. And then we also need to acknowledge that uh, in. Even if we get very successful, even if we manage to, to meet the Paris Agreement and have even uh, only a 1.5% uh, increase in temperature, uh, there will be areas, particularly around the, the equator, where uh, living there and producing food will become quite difficult. So we should be expecting uh, uh, some kind of larger migration happening in the next uh, decades, um, which we should, instead of seeing as a big threat and as a big problem, We need to try to actually acknowledge it's going to happen and find a good way of of, uh, structuring and organizing and governing it so we can all kind of coexist in a much better way and ensure that we have a food system that provides uh, people with the food they need produced by themselves, so people uh, producing their own food, and also people working together across nations and across uh, social barriers uh, to produce food for everybody. Because the fact is, if we move towards a much more plant-based diet. There's more than enough space on the planet, more than enough space to grow all that food. There's plenty of space, even so much so that we can start with and foresting large uh, areas of the planet and have much more biodiversity of wildlife and carbon sinks returning. So migration, um, uh, e- expectancy and governance of that, local food production, and of course, much more plant-based food. That would be my best take.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And I, and I appreciate the time today. This has been a, a very um, it's a long overdue conversation that I'm glad we got to have. Um, you, you've got me really excited and energized <laughs> to do even more of the work that I'm doing. Um, and I'm excited to to work with you and, and help this effort in any way possible. And I encourage everyone listening to go check out 50 by 40 um, and to get keep an eye on this organization as it launches and grows and evolves in the years ahead. We've all got to work together to make this a success. Um, I don't think we have an option.
2: Thank you so much, Neil.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.
0: 18 plus.